Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast releasing on Tuesdays and Fridays in audio and video format. It's on leadership with Scott Miller and that's me. I'm privileged to be your host each week as we turn Franklin Covey's spotlight onto thought leaders around the world that we think quite frankly, can make you a better leader. Whether that's a formal leader inside of your company or organization, perhaps you're a school teacher, a principal, maybe you're a rabbi, a priest, or you are an individual contributor. Perhaps you are a leader in your home or just want to be a better human being. Franklin Covey's mission is to inspire greatness in people and organizations everywhere. And today, I'm delighted we finally land the iconic thinker, contributor, and uh, mind Malcolm Gladwell. He, of course, is a prolific author, contributor, big picture thinker, iconoclast, you might say, in some arenas. And we're delighted to pick his brain on all things related to the future of work and what does society look like as all of us try to manage what is a vastly changing landscape seemingly by the day. Malcolm Gladwell, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you. Delighted to be on the show. Great to have you, sir. As I mentioned to you off camera, I uh, have been a longtime follower of your work. I have subscribed to the New Yorker magazine in print since I was in high school back in 1986. I uh, have not missed an issue in, gosh, 30 years. I discovered you early on when you began to contribute periodic articles to the New Yorker. Your early articles, of course, went on to enormous impact and influence the many books you've written. The speeches you've given have been a big fan of your work for, um, gosh, 27 years now. Malcolm, for those last few people who may know your name, but don't know your, your passion in your work, would you rewind a couple of decades early in life, perhaps as, your, as a journalist and such, and reorient everybody to your last 30 years or so? Well, I'm a, I'm a Canadian, and I came to the United States uh, after college and um, worked, my first real job was the Washington Post where I worked for 10 years uh, as a, and learned the craft of journalism. And then I went to the New Yorker and spent 10 years there um, and uh, started writing, and then I started writing books. And then after that, I uh, now I have a podcast as well as writing books called Revisionist History. Um, so I've sort of done, I've had a foot in many different worlds over the years, but everything from daily newspapers to podcasts. Ironically, your and my paths have crossed. Your and my path have crossed today for the first time. Although I was close to a Malcolm sighting once, you and I both keynoted a conference in Trinidad, of all places, like ten years ago. Because oh, your your placard was in the lobby, and so was mine. But I was like at nine, and you were at three, and I had to fly out. And I was so excited to meet yeah. you backstage, but of course I missed you by about an hour. Anyway, here we are. Delighted to jump in. Franklin Covey, of course, we like to uh, think of ourselves as the most trusted leadership firm in the world. We are a great partner with companies and organizations around the world, kind of obsessed with how do you develop cultures and leaders where people choose to stay. We're always interested in talking to experts about the future of work. What does the future look like? To the extent you have an opinion, your research uh, allows you to opine, what do you think organizations should know about, be thinking about, have an insatiable curiosity around what the future of work looks like. Take that wherever you'd like to go. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I've been writing, um, I've, the book I'm working on now is a sequel to The Tipping Point. So I'm going back and, and I've been looking at kind of updating my first book. Um, and in the course of doing that, I've been thinking a lot about organizational culture 
and how powerful and important it is um, and how much we're influenced in a way that we don't always appreciate by the kind of what I call the overstory, which is the message being sent by the community that we're a part of. And I, one of my concerns when I look into the future is that because we're not aware of how important overstories are, how important organizational culture is, um, we're not going to pay enough attention to maintaining those cultures in changed working environments. So when you, you know, the move to work from home is probably inevitable in large sense, but I think we have to recognize that when you do that, you lose one of your, one of the easiest routes you had to instilling company culture. So how are you going to replace that? Um, that's to me the, one of the biggest issues facing um, corporations. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real difference between working at Costco and working at Walmart, right? Cultural difference. There's a real difference in working at uh, Google and working at Amazon. Those are cultural differences. They're real. Um, there are hospitals in the United States that have a culture that allows them to perform at the highest imaginable level. There are hospitals in the United States whose culture makes terrible doctors out of people who are otherwise intelligent and well-trained. Culture is hugely important, but I don't know how you build those cultures. I don't, I shouldn't. It's harder to build those cultures in an environment where everyone's not coming to the same place every day. And it, I, if I had to, to me, that is the biggest challenge of the next generation. Malcolm, you used the phrase overstory a couple of times. Would you just dig a little bit deeper into that? For those who are leaning in right now and listening, how do they make sure their company is, you know, culture is perhaps more like Costco, for mm -hmm. example. What does the term overstory mean to leaders? How do they know what theirs is and how do they create it and sustain the right overstory? Yeah. Well, overstory is, you know, is the word that's used to describe the, the upper foliage in a forest. So it's not the thing that you're looking at if you're walking along the forest floor, but how dense and how high and the kinds of trees that make up the overstory have a huge impact on which species thrive on the forest floor or how those species behave. Or I think it's a really beautiful metaphor for, uh, for organizational life and for community life. Communities have overstories. The United States is an overstory, a really beautiful and powerful one. Um, you know, other cultures, other, other countries have overstories that are, you know, if you compare the level of tax cheating in the United States and Italy, you will see a beautiful case study, perfect case study in different overstories. In the United States, people pay their taxes. In Italy, they don't. That's, you know, that's the result of a story that's been told about your obligations to your community and your society over many, many years. Um, those kinds of things, like I said, they're not things that we dwell on or pay a lot of attention to, but they're enormously important. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in this new book of mine is trying to figure out where do these stories come from? How do we build them? How do we make sure we pay attention to them? Um, uh, and, it, you know, a lot of this is about paying much more attention to ritual and to the narratives that we um, tell about an organization. Um, uh, 
pay more attention to kind of founding stories, you know, how a company comes together and why it came together and the circumstances under which it was it, was, it began mm. are enormously crucial. Mm. You know, they're, those are creating a kind of positive mythology about an organization is something that um, I've come to realize is probably much more important than I would have thought 10 years ago. I think what you just said is consequential. I am privileged to have had a nearly 35-year career across two organizations, the Walt Disney Company for four years and the Franklin Covey Company for nearly 30-plus years. And both of those have remarkable origin stories with Walt Disney and with Stephen Covey and Hiram Smith. And I think to this day, both of those organizations, you know, all things equal had done a remarkable job of keeping those origin stories part of what attracts people, employees and customers to the brand. Uh, beautifully said. Hey, over your 40 years as a thinker, a writer, a researcher, an opiner, sometimes at risk, right? You obviously have both received praise and criticism. Is there something that you've learned about humanity that you no longer believe is true? Like you thought this was true, and over the course of your research and evolution and maturity, you now say, you know, actually, that's not true about people. Here's what I've come to know. What's something you've changed yeah. your mind on? I'm much more, it's funny, I was thinking about this just the other day. I was emailing with somebody yesterday, and they sent me a kind of nasty email about a debate that I had done last year. And they said, I'm sure you thought you were being really, you know, clever and brilliant, but you got your clock cleaned. And I wrote the guy back and I said, actually, I didn't think I was clever and brilliant. I actually think I was terrible. <laughs> and and here's a here's a link to a podcast episode I did explaining all the things I did wrong. And then the guy responded with a really sweet email. He's like, oh, thank you. I'll take a listen. You know, thanks for your humility or something. And I, it, I tell that story only because I, I more and more are impressed by, in a good way, how... Um, uh, how flexible people's opinions are and how misleading sometimes. Just because someone expresses a strongly held belief doesn't mean that strongly held belief is permanent or unchangeable or... I think people are incredibly malleable. And it's why we've survived as a species, thrived as a species for as long as we have. We don't... We may come across as being sticks in the mud and being, um, you know, extraordinarily stubborn in sticking to our beliefs. But that's actually not true. Human beings will change their mind if given the, if given the opportunity. And um, so I'm, I'm much less, when someone expresses a view, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't take people's positions at face value the way I used to. Um, even in my reporting, now I'm much more likely to circle back to people and say, do you still believe that? Are you sure you believe that? What if I put it this way? You know, um, that's been a big change in the way I kind of perceive others. An adage that's had a profound impact on me is this phrase, everything in life is black or white until it impacts someone you love. And I think that's mm -hmm. been a, a big eye opener for me until it impacts your children or your spouse or your mother-in-law, right? Whether it be an LGBTQ issue or it's a transgender issue from your neighbor and you learn their story, 
when it impacts someone you love, I think you become more malleable. Uh, Malcolm, you live a very public life, whether it's intentional or the consequence of being bold and courageous. How do you deal with um, criticism on ideas that you express? You gave us a microcosm of that right now, but for people who are courageous, whether they're a, uh, a content creator on the internet, or they're a, uh, an author, or a thought leader, or they're just the leader of their division, and everything they do is watched and critiqued and judged and analyzed, any advice on what you have learned about how to deal with criticism, maybe how it's impacted your own, your own psyche and how others might take some insights from that? Yeah. Well, a lot of that you know, goes back to what I was just saying about how um, I've come to believe that people's positions are not cast in stone. So that's the first thing to remember when you're criticized, um, that someone who criticizes you may not always feel that way. Um, uh, their minds may be changed. They may forget or move on. They may be expressing themselves in a way that seems hostile, but actually isn't hostile. You know, I've, got, you know, I've, I've come to understand that a lot of what looks unnuanced is actually quite nuanced. So that's one thing I keep in mind that it doesn't just because someone is, is responding negatively to something you say today doesn't mean they'll respond negatively tomorrow. I, years ago, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker in which I, people, it was right after the Arab Spring and people were talking about how this was a series of revolutions that were caused by Twitter and that Twitter was transforming the ability of small groups to overthrow authoritarian regimes. And I wrote a piece for The New Yorker in which I said, that's just nuts. Twitter is not changing the world. People went after me. I got more criticism on that than almost anything I've ever written. And then now, I think most people think, yeah, you, you're probably right. You know, it's fine. 10 years have passed and it's no longer the, I just think you have to remember that, you know, that it's not, um, these aren't permanent conditions. That's one thing that I think can give you strength to speak your mind. Um, and the other thing is that criticism is rarely monolithic. It can look like the world has turned against you, but the world never, the whole world never turns against you. There's always a bunch of, and the people who tend to agree with you probably don't speak up. So you got to remember that there's a silent group out there who's probably on your side and they don't feel the need to speak up because they're on your side, right? The, the critic is always the loud one. Yeah, the comment so, box yeah. is often not stuffed with accolades and um, appreciation. Uh, yeah. Which broad... is why, by the way, no, please, I was going to say, no, please. Which is why it's so important to speak up when you like something. It Isn't that just true? matters Isn't that 10 true? times more. Yeah. Uh, broad question. Um, I'm going to use the word most, so forgive me. What do most people misconstrue or. Um, get wrong about other people? Like, what are some of the judgments you think so many of us fall into that if we just had a little more deliberation, a little more patience, a little more space between stimulus and response, we might have less conflict, more joy in our life. Are there some things that you've learned that might empower people listening or watching today, especially in the holidays, to say, you know, when you, when you find yourself in this situation, recognize the other person might be dealing with this. Give them some space. What have you learned as a social scientist? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're talking there about motives and how people's motives are usually hidden. So we can, we make, we imagine what someone's motive is. And we, one of the mistakes we make is we reach for the most 
damning motive to describe someone's behavior. That person is lazy. That person is ignoring me. That person is whatever you is malicious. And we forget maybe they're just tired or maybe they're kids sick at home. You know, there's that kind of thing, which I think also in organization, in organizations, it's a a really important um, lesson because you know, in, in in organizations, we are we build we're essentially building judgment judgment factories, right? Organizations have to make judgments about people, about ideas, about products, and I think the the crucial lesson is that those judgments have to be as narrow as possible. You need to be able to judge the idea without judging the motives of the person, because you don't know the motives of the person. You're probably wrong. Um, they're probably not going to tell you right away, at least, what the true motivation is, or they're not expressing it in a way that's... So that idea of kind of um, being very, very uh, tightly focused on evaluating an idea on its merits and not trying to kind of broaden our analysis to include the person uh, is, I think, essential. Um, also because, you know, another thing that... Um, I realized is that, you know, the variation in people's skills is much more dramatic than I would have realized. I, I remember seeing a, this fascinating thing about teachers. And it was an analysis of math teachers based on various metrics for analyzing teacher quality. And the point of people would say, you know, let's use these teacher metrics to decide who's good at teaching math and who isn't. And this whole paper was about how that's an absurd question. Because it turns out if you look very closely at the data, um, it's much more finely grained than that. Some people are good at teaching. You could be really good at teaching algebra and terrible at teaching calculus. You can be great at teaching math to struggling students and be terrible at teaching math to excellent students and vice versa. You can be good. In other words, you chop it up and you realize, oh, wait a minute. There's not one kind of good teacher or bad teacher. There's hundreds of different kinds of good teachers or bad teachers. So now we understand that when you understand that there's that much variability in human excellence, human performance, the job of the manager is very different. It's to, it's to make finely grained, narrow judgments about somebody's Performance. It's not to draw broad conceptual conclusions about someone's worth, right? That's that idea that there's infinite variety in our levels of performance is just such a kind of crucial and overlooked um, notion. Those last two thoughts are worthy of a masterclass in how to prepare for 2024 in America and the polarization that no doubt will come about with the political election and everybody kind of already girding their loins, right, for divisiveness and judgment. Uh, Malcolm, what was the tipping point of your career? Was, was there a confluence of articles or events? Was it, was it uh, uh, intentional from you? Was there a point when your influence, your reception exponentiated and if so, is there anything you could extrapolate that people might learn from that in their own aspirations to increase their own influence? Yeah. 
Well, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be at the New Yorker at a time when the New Yorker had a very powerful place in the intellectual culture of the country. Um, then I came up with my book, The Tipping Point, which was not a success right away, but it became a success because I went on the road. I spent years traveling the country promoting that book. Um, in retrospect, an astonishing amount of time. And I realized, what I realized in retrospect is that, that the making a personal connection with your audience is something that uh, there's no substitute for that, none. Um, no newfangled technology can replace the in-person connection. That I went, I traveled this country 17 different times, 17 different ways, four years, making my, presenting my ideas to people face to face. And those people have stayed with me uh, for 25 years. That's been my core audience ever since. Um, I just think that was, had I not done that, I don't think I would have had a fraction of the um, influence as a writer, success as a writer as I've had. Um, and, you know, the, I think that translates um, in countless ways. You know, we learned during COVID that education, some parts of education work fine, remote, but other parts, it's a disaster. You want to teach a child, you have to teach them face-to-face, -face, right? In a room full of other people learning. There's no way around that. They, they can get homework help online. They can access materials online. But at some point in the process, there has to be a face-to-face -face connection because that's where that kind of connection is how we grow as human beings, right? And I could, you could, like I said, you could extrapolate this um, a million different ways. At a certain point, you can't fight a million years of evolution. We evolved in groups and we, we evolved to, to, to gain, um, uh, 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 to, gain to, to gain something powerful through human connection. You just can't take that away and expect the same results to happen. Uh, indulge me as I dig deeper on that. Malcolm, you are one of the most iconic authors of my generation. And I think sometimes we all fall into the trap of judging where we are on our path to where someone else is on their path. Maybe even aspirationally. Where you are today is not perhaps where most, aspire, most aspiring authors or podcasters or TV hosts or bloggers or social media posters, whatever it is someone's goal is, would you rewind and dig deeper on maybe even prescriptively, what did you do for those years around tipping point? When you said that phrase, it reminds me of Rick Warren, the, the famous you know, evangelist preacher that wrote The Purpose Driven Life. This book has sold 50 million copies, but Rick mortgaged his home. And he drove around the country, I believe, in a truck and a camper and gave out thousands of copies to small town ministers and created small groups. And the very end is when that book finally took off. No one knows that. All they see is Rick Warren now, you know, 40 years later. Would you inspire creators, developers, product innovators, people with a side hustle, people that are just starting out? What are the, some of the things you did to launch the tipping point that no one sees but they need to be like emboldened on their own journey by recognizing, well, if Malcolm can do it, then so can I. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is about, it's about time. Um, one of the things that has impressed me over the years, 
like when you like with with Rick Warren, it's very interesting. I once interviewed Rick um, for a story I wrote for the New Yorker. Um, it's a fascinating guy. That's a perfect example of this particular phenomenon that has always interested me. So you're right. We look at that book, The Purpose Driven Life, and we begin our narrative when it starts to jumps to the top of the bestseller list. And we leave out all of the backstory, the months, if not years, that Rick spent building it to the point where it could be a success. And I think that that's something we do all the time. We leave out backstories. And with the result that we think that success takes, uh, uh, the success happens in a much shorter frame of time than it actually does. I think the story's always longer than we realize. So you see, you see that two-year window when he sells 50 million books, and you don't see the two years before. So now it's four. What I used to do, I remember I used to be fascinated by looking at, um, I would ask people the following question. I would take a, a rock and roll band and I would say, like Fleetwood Mac, what was the breakthrough Fleetwood Mac album? People would say it was probably Rumors or the album before it was called Fleetwood Mac. And I'd say, what number record do you think that is in their discography? People would say, well, I don't know. Maybe the self-titled one was their second album and Rumors was their third. The real answer is that Rumors was their 14th album. Nobody talks about the first 12 albums, right? <laughs> that, that part of the story, they don't talk about the 15 years Fleetwood Mac spent touring, you know, around England and America in little small venues and uh, endless experimentation that went on behind that band. And, you know, that we just leave that out. And we, we think of, we think that every success story is an overnight success story. And I wonder whether that seeped into the culture because we had a little window with uh, Silicon Valley where we got a lot of, we got this very rare thing. We got an, a, a lot of overnight success stories all in a row. Uh, and I think that, that that fed into this fantasy that, oh, this is the way the world works, as opposed to saying that was probably an anomaly having to do with the particulars of software business and digital whatever. And it's just not the way it's going to look most times. Um, and we need to, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, build that narrative of patience back into our understanding of, excuse <laughs> me, <laughs> Back into understanding of, of how success happens. Malcolm, I'm the father with my wife of three young boys that are nine, let's see, 12 and 13 at the time of this taping. One of the skills that we are teaching them is I think it's a professional superpower, and that is the ability to reduce your thoughts to writing, to being able to you know, craft cogent documents, whether it is press releases or in a reports or a blog for your company or a longer short form print or digital article. Maybe if, not, maybe if you're a you know, thoracic surgeon, you don't need to do that, but maybe you do. Mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a developed writer, what are some tips you would give everyone listening on how to effectively reduce your thoughts into cogent writing that people want to read and your point comes across? Any skill that you've honed that you could share with us that is replicable across everybody's skill level currently? Yeah, um, single most important thing, write something and put it aside for as long as you can. Come back to it, rewrite it, put it aside. 
for as long as you can. Try that as an experiment once, and you will be stunned by how by your by how uh, clearly you can see a way to improve what you've written. So much, so many of our problems around writing, I think, have to do with the fact that we think we can accomplish it all in one go. And the, 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 the act of being immersed in a piece of writing makes us blind to its faults, right? Gotta set it aside. So every book I do, I do drafts, then I come back and I go, you know, after some period of time and I look at it fresh. That's hugely important, but it goes back to my idea of time. So much of our difficulties with writing have to do with the fact that we're in a hurry and we think we can, we ought to be able to accomplish it, the whole task, in some very narrowly defined uh, time frame. No, you don't. Slow down. It's fine to slow down, right? I've often thought if I taught a class, and at some point in my life I would love to teach a class, a writing class, I would structure a series of rolling deadlines. So I would, without telling the students, I would say your essays due, you know, Monday. I wouldn't tell them what I was intending. I would take all the essays, two weeks would pass, and then I would hand them back to the students. And I would say, I haven't even read them yet. I want you to rewrite them. Hmm. They would do it again. And I would pretend I was going to grade them. And I wouldn't. I'd wait two weeks and I'd give it back to them again. And I would say, take a look. Make it a little better. Right? I think it would be an that, And I guarantee every kid in the class, once they got over the hump of, oh, my God, I have to do this again, they would understand, oh, I now can see things in a new way. Um, and that... You know, that's an enormously important discipline, not just for writing, but for so many problems that we have. We have, I think we've, for, we, in some, we often overlook the value of reflection, right? That's what that, that exercise is about. It's about reflection, building in the, the time and capacity of, for reflection into a creative work. And that's, I just find that um, uh, priceless. You have just described my human resource file over the course of my 30-year career. Uh, I once heard someone say, nearly everything in life is better done slower. I think there's great wisdom in that. Malcolm, is there a topic that you're sort of insatiably curious about right now that you think also leaders should be equally concerned about? Not organic gardening. Is there something that you're like opining yeah. on and thinking about that you think other people should also be equally as curious about. Tony, uh, building off what I just said, I've really been fascinated recently with, we're starting to learn a lot more about male-female differences. That sounds silly because I feel like we've been obsessed with that for a long time, but I, we're beginning to put our finger on some very real meaningful differences that uh, change the argument for building diversity in the workforce. So I remember I read a, someone was telling me about, about a study that was done of surgeons uh, comparing male and female surgeons. And the male surgeons did their surgeries a lot faster. And the female surgeons did their surgeries a lot slower. And the female surgeons made fewer mistakes. And the male surgeons made more mistakes. So which is better? One is more efficient in the sense that the men are more efficient. It says they're getting more done in less amount of time, but they're making errors. People are getting hurt, in some cases dying. Women 
are on paper less efficient, but they're doing a better job, right? Now, what do you do with that fact? Well, you should probably, if you don't have a lot of female surgeons, get more female surgeons. You should probably try and get the two groups of surgeons to learn from each other, right, in some way. You kind of want, is there a way to have the best of both worlds, right? You could, I mean, I, I don't even know. I've even, I haven't, I'm not a surgeon. I haven't thought through what you would do with this. But those kinds of observations go to this larger question of the value of diversity that I think we've been thinking about diversity as something symbolic, and that's a mistake. The reason that you build diverse workplaces is not because it looks better on paper. That's silly. The reason you build diverse workforces is that you come to believe that there is something valuable, but having lots of different kinds of people attacking a common problem, right? And that differences of gender and cultural background and are real. They make a difference in how people think about problems. And that's, it's really, really useful to have different minds, you know, uh, uh, collaborating, like I say, on a common problem. So that's something I've been, this kind of new understanding of the value of diversity is something that I have, that I've been really, really curious about um, and interested in. My blood pressure lowers just listening to the way you deliver that profound thought. Last question, I'm mindful of our time. Uh, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the co-founder of our company, wrote this seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of a dozen books he wrote that became bestsellers and launched this global brand, Franklin Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Malcolm, when you think of the most effective people that you have encountered, you've researched, you've met, you've befriended, you've loved or have cared for or partnered with, what are some of the traits that come up to you in your mind about what makes an effective person going into 2024? Well, you know, I've, I've, I can only answer, I can answer that in many different ways, but maybe the best way to answer it is, who are the people that I'm drawn to? Um, and the people I'm drawn to are people who find joy in what they do. Um, it's as simple as that. My, my role model in this respect was my father who got up every day and he was a mathematician and would go to his study and work and without fail every single day except for weekends. And he did it because he loved it. And it was the most beautiful, infectious thing. He, he found joy in that, in what he was doing. And by the way, it wasn't just math. He found joy in everything he did. He was a gardener who found joy in gardening. He was a dog lover who found joy in dogs. And he was, he loved small children because he found joy in small children. He just was someone who chose to see the world as a place uh, full of joy if you knew where to look for it. And that's choice, right? It didn't, it didn't come, it wasn't something that came out. He made that choice that he was gonna, to, he was gonna choose to enjoy himself and enjoy the world. Um, and those kinds of people, if you can find them and surround yourself with them and work with them, everything flows from that, you know? Uh, you know, we, we had a Christmas party at my company uh, uh, last week, and there was these two guys who live in California, three people who live outside New York. And the question is, well, should we fly them in for the party? And our answer was, we don't have a lot of money at the moment, right? We're a podcast company. 
And the, our answer was clear, yes. Why? Because they're all, the three of them are all people who find incredible joy in what they do. And we could, can't have a party without them. How can you have a party without them? We have to slide up the room. So, you know, so we flew them in, right? Put them up in New York City. Like, that's, that's what I care about now. What a great send-off. Joy is a choice. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you investing in all of our listeners and viewers. You're a class act. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.